0: Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jared Lawson. Let me pray for us and we will begin our theological equipping class. Father, we love you. Uh, We thank you for your church. We thank you that it has endured, that your promise is true, that the gates of hell have not prevailed against it for 2,000 years. And we have the opportunity uh, to look back and learn and see where there is Uh, faithfulness, things that can challenge us, see where there is missteps, things we can avoid. So we pray that today as we look at uh, the black church in America, that you would give us eyes to see, that we would be challenged, uh, we would uh, perhaps learn a little bit more about a tradition maybe we're not uh, as familiar with, and that we will glorify you in the same way that your church continues to uh, be preserved and prevail, and we pray that it would continue to happen today. We love you, pray in your son's name, amen. Okay, so... A little bit of a unique lesson we've been walking through kind of chronologically in the timeline, looking at the Puritans, looking at the Great Awakenings, we'll look at uh, the Second Great Awakening later. We've been kind of walking, getting closer and closer to modern day, but today we're going to kind of pause uh, and look particularly at the black church in America. And before we do, I need to make three three uh, preliminary statements. Preliminary statement number one i'm going to have to use throughout this entire teaching really unhelpful broad terms because those are the terms our society has chosen to use so rather than using terms that i just make up that are more specific that you don't understand i'm going to have to use what our culture uses like the black church And that's really broad really unhelpful here's how it's unhelpful i'm going to say things like the black church did this And it's not going to mean every single black Christian in America. It might not even mean, uh, you know, 99%. might be 70% of the black church in this certain time period. So I might say things like the white evangelicals in Jim Crow did this. Do I mean every single white Christian? No. I'm going to have to use really generic terms. So here's how you can give me grace. When you think of the exception, don't think, That's a lie. When you think of the exception, think. Jared knows there's exceptions to this. He's just having to use unhelpful, broad terms. That's clarifier number one. Clarifier number two, uh, why uh, am I, as a, you know, super white guy, like private school khaki pants white, why am I teaching a lesson on the black church? So uh, we live in the, you know, postmodern age of identity politics, things like that, that says if you don't have a certain experience... You can't speak into certain issues, which, if that's true, technically we can't teach on church history at all, because I've never been a 17th century Puritan. I've never lived like, without toilets and stuff like that, and uh, I'm not an African bishop from uh, Hippo, so I can't really talk about Augustine, right? If that's true, we can't really talk about anything. We also can't teach on the Bible, because I'm not a Middle Eastern Jew from 2,000 years ago. I don't have that experience, but we're going to push against that false narrative, because God's truth stands over experience. Okay, so we're going to look at these. God's truth stands over experience. I'm white. Get over it. Uh, Clarifier number three. You may be asking the question. uh, So we have the kind of the woke side that might be, you're not, you're a white guy. You shouldn't uh, speak about this. You might be on the other side that says, why are we talking about the black church? Why are we dividing up the church? Are we going to do a lesson on the Asian church later and a lesson on the white church? Why are we dividing up the church? Isn't this just kind of playing into the woke narrative? It might be a little worried there. We have a unique history in America where, by ethnicity, we did separate the church. The church said to African-American brothers and sisters, you can't come in here. Go do your own thing. And so they do have their own unique history for centuries and centuries and centuries. Okay, so one of the reasons why, you know, it's kind of like saying, why talk about the Jews? in the 1930s and 40s can't we just talk about you know the war and how the allies won You're like okay well that ethnic people group had some things happen to them that kind of creates its own unique history it's kind of the same with the black church for the majority of uh american history so if you're worried that this is kind of uh playing into the woke narrative buy zach's book read about the slippery slope fallacy and get over it right that's equally not as true so those are the three things unhelpful terms i'm white who cares and uh you know we're not playing into a woke narrative. History's not going to make you woke. It's going to make you wise. See what I did there? Okay. Now, uh, here's here's kind of an overview. We're going to look at different eras that are kind of arbitrary. I just wrote these so that we can talk about different segments. We're going to look at uh, slavery and the Civil War as kind of a first era of the black church, the roots of the black church, the formation of a community. We're going to look at Reconstruction, which is only a 12-year period, but really sets Uh, African-Americans off on a certain trajectory uh, because we see a lot of the failures of of attempts to kind of uh, redress slavery and things like that that's going to lead to this third era which is Jim Crow civil rights movement things like that and then we'll talk about today what is the black church today is there a black church today what's their identity today things like that so we'll look through those eras and we're going to have to look at a lot of social situations Because, again, you can't talk about the black church, the ministry of the black church, the way the black church endured without looking at the social circumstances that they were enduring in. So we're going to do a lot of just history because we have to kind of set the stage to show the role that the black church played in the midst of that history. And my goals here are simply just to understand history. To expose us a little bit to perhaps traditions that we're uh, not that familiar with, just by the very nature of wherever we grew up. Um, I wasn't familiar with a lot of these things before I really started studying just different African-American preachers that have become incredibly influential, things like that, uh, and see just the incredibly valuable history, where we can be challenged, where we can learn, where we can better understand our day. Just learning history always clarifies the day in which we live. So there's value there. So done with my long preliminary, don't get mad at me intro, let's actually look at the lesson. So uh, around... Uh, the first century, the first kind of sixth centuries, Africa, particularly North Africa, is the brain of the church. If I can say it that way. The most influential Christians, Tertullian, the father of Western theology, Cyprian or Cyprian, uh, Augustine, Fulgentius of Rusby, fun name, Athanasius, giving us the doctrine of the Trinity, working that out, fighting for it, uh, Cyril of Alexandria, giving us Christology, all, all the things that are shaping the church are coming from North Africa. All of those guys are African. Augustine, again, the most influential person in the history of the Christian church. So Africa is somewhat the brain and the rise of Islam, Carl taught a lesson several weeks ago, is going to completely wipe that out. It's going to really redraw the map where we see a lot of uh, Christianity gets forced up into Europe. And so by the time of around the 17th century, when we really see a lot of the slave trade beginning 16th, 17th century, when we have around 12 to 13 million Africans being brought uh, to the Americas, in particular as slaves. Christianity has been, for the most part, wiped out. And for as, as much as we can tell, most of uh, the Africans that are being kidnapped, brought over as slaves are not Christian, have their own uh, uh, tribal religions, things like that. They're from a vast variety of tribes and languages. And in fact, one of the practices of the slave trade uh, is different plantation owners would buy slaves, uh, by Africans from different tribes. They wanted to stomp out their cultural roots for fear of rebellion okay, what's the best way to put down rebellion? Don't let anyone unify. Get people from different languages so they can't talk and strategize. So in America, from the get-go, you have a community or you have an ethnicity of people that have been ripped out of their cultural roots, ripped out of their geographical roots, and so a new community is kind of being forged from the uh, beginning. And so this is when we start to see Christianity begin to influence. Again, uh, this is America in the 17th century, it is a, not a Christian nation officially, but Christianity is by far the dominant religion. Many of the plantation owners identified as Christians. And originally, uh, plantation owners were very hesitant, particularly Protestant plantation owners, were hesitant to evangelize. Uh, why? Well, again, fear. If they have something to unify around, they might rebel against us. And two, if they become Christians, are we going to have to release them? And so there was ex- ex- uh, extreme hesitancy towards evangelizing uh, slaves until many of the Protestant churches said, conversion to Christianity just brings spiritual freedom, not physical freedom. And all the plantation owners said, great, okay, mass evangelism. Uh, so you see some of the motivations there and even preaching the gospel in the, in the beginning. But we see, as far as what we know from early records, despite God using broken vessels, the gospel does remarkably Uh, move in a very powerful way among many of the African slaves. So imagine hearing, being a slave, uh, being not treated great, and uh, hearing of a God who cares for the lowly. Part of his character is he's a God of justice, he's a God of peace. Imagine reading the book of Exodus and seeing that when there was a people enslaved for 400 years, God went after them and delivered them from their oppressors. Imagine that. What would that do? Would that be an attractive uh, God to you? Imagine hearing of a God-man who came down and didn't hang out with the kings. He hung out with the prostitutes. He hung out with the rejected. He comes to, to lift up those who have been cast down. He stands up against the evil oppressors. He gives life. He brings freedom. All these different things. Imagine... Hearing those types of things when you're reading the scriptures or when you're hearing from the scriptures. So we see the same gospel message that converts 3,000 when Peter gives his first sermon. Converts literally millions of African slaves during the the slave era. Which is incredible when you think about most of the people preaching the gospel to them or reading the Bible to them are doing it with the motive of keeping them in line. Uh, We'll look at this in a second. The favorite passages of plantation owners were... Slaves, submit to your masters, obviously, right, to keep them in line. Here's God's word, do what I say. And yet, the spirit is more powerful than poor motives. Here's a quote from Diana Haynes, who's a professor at Georgetown. Somehow, an illiterate oral people were able to grasp the kernel of truth of the Christian faith that Jesus died to set all humans free and to pass that belief down to the following generations to build and f- build, uh, f- further and develop there's was a paradoxical paradoxical in spite of faith that gave this uh, gave them strength and courage to preserve in the face of horrible odds. So again you see the power of the gospel even with you would imagine uh, impossible circumstances. Uh, takes root, and we see mass conversion, uh, a lot of African slaves coming to uh, know Christ. And so we see uh, the use of Scripture, as, as I just mentioned. Most of the time, uh, there was uh, slave masters would talk about a sovereign God. God is sovereign, and he's ordained your place, so you're not going to disobey God and try to rebel against me, are you? And you have verses that you would twist. Ironically, they would use Philemon a lot, which is Paul telling Philemon to free Onesimus, uh, or he mentions that, but apparently that was a favorite uh, passage, I guess, to say, Look, here's slavery. It exists. It's in God's Bible. And uh, I did not know about this teaching until I really started studying. There was this uh, popular teaching about the curse of Ham. Uh, Look at Genesis 9. I've got it written here. So this is after Noah on the boat, waters go down, everyone but his family are destroyed, and uh, Noah plants a vineyard gets a little drunk. Look at verse 20. Noah began to be a, uh, be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank uh, of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. When Noah awoke uh, from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, curse be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. So, You probably have read that. If you don't know about the curse of Ham, you read that and you're like, oh, a random curse in the Bible. Now, what most uh, uh, teaching that began to be developed is, uh, you know, when Noah, you know, they land on Mount Ararat and they spread out, the sun spread out all over the earth, Uh, the idea was Ham goes south into Africa is blackened by the sun, and he's clearly cursed, and therefore inferior. And so it was used to say, you are descendants of Ham, African slaves, and you are destined for slavery since Genesis 9. Okay, that's your legacy. So that was a very popular teaching. So that's how uh, the scriptures are being used uh, to kind of teach the slaves. And uh, slaves, reading and writing was illegal, punishable by death. Uh, so if you did learn, you had to be very careful about it and teach others in secret or pass uh, down tradition orally. And so that you do have some people beginning to read and understand the Scriptures. And what would you imagine is the favorite passage if you're reading the Bible, if you're a slave in America? Exodus yeah, Exodus is the favorite book by far. Also Genesis 1 and 2, this idea that God creates man in the image of God. He's beginning to see these ideas of equality. Uh, Exodus, you would think you would have this idea of, oh, God is a deliverer of slaves. He's on our side. Right. You see uh, so many passages in the Old Testament about God caring for the poor, God being on the side of the poor, the prophets rebuking leaders for mistreating the poor among them. Uh, and then again, Jesus, particularly in Luke's gospel, you see him constantly overturning these social norms, hanging out with the rejected in society, prostitutes, things like that. Uh, and uh, you, you start to get this idea of that's the character of our God. The God of the Bible, that's his character. He cares for us. He sees us. When everybody else tells us that we're worthless, that we're lesser than our God, cares for us. And notice, this is going to be a very uh, strong stamp of the black church. It is impossible uh, to just have, you know, your life over here and your intellectual doctrinal belief over here. Right? It is impossible when you're in horrible situations like this to think, I believe in God, I believe these doctrines are true, but I'm over here working at my job, you know, I'm occupied. My thoughts are occupied over here with job, raising kids, you know, career advancement, all that stuff, my hobbies. None of this exists. And so you would see uh, your, your Christianity, your belief in God affects all of your life. Uh, and that, that is a strong mark on, on the black church throughout its history. There, there's not this separation of, or it's kind of impossible for there to be this separation of, here's what I believe, here's how I live. They're one and the same. So, uh, on many uh, occasions, yeah, we mentioned this, uh, reading and writing was punishable by death, and so, again, they're, they're very secretly uh, either teaching or someone who knows how to read is, is, is ministering the Bible, and again, there's, there's this growing hope in the God of the Bible, that he hears their prayers, that God is a God of justice, that Jesus came to lift up the oppressed, and the Spirit gives power and gives life. So, we see uh, as, as history uh, continues to develop, still in the slavery era, uh, African American spirituals begin to develop. The, uh, the, the African American slaves, uh, there's this incredibly, uh, in, or incredible ability to just take passages and immediately apply it to their life in worship. Immediately apply it to their circumstances in worship. Remember, there's no organized church there's no denominational oversight. There's no tradition. They don't have the Westminster con- uh, Confession of Faith to draw from. They don't have the 1689 confession to draw from. There's no catech- There's no- nothing being given to them as saying, "Here's. I'm going to teach you how the Christian life works. They're simply reading their scriptures, and so we see African-American spirituals come up, we see uh, uh, these songs, things like uh, Jeremiah 8:22, where Jeremiah is bringing judge- or, or declaring judgment against Israel and simply says this, "Is there no balm in Gilead?" That's one of the, just a quick statement. Jeremiah 8:22. Gilead was this place of healing in Israel, east of the Jordan, and Jeremiah is is saying judgment is coming. There's no healing for you, and a lot of African American Christians take that verse, flip it, and write a song. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Taking the scriptures, not just saying this is truth, I'm believing it, but singing developing songs to unify them around uh, the truth that they're seeing in the scriptures, one that we all know. They read about Elijah being taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot in 2 Kings 2 and develop the song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, Coming Forth to Carry Me Home. I look over the Jordan and what do I see? Coming forth to carry me home, a band of angels coming after me. If you get there before I do, tell all my friends I'm coming too. The brightest day I can ever say when Jesus washes my sins away. Sometimes up, sometimes down, but still my soul feels heaven-bound. You see how, again, developing music, focus your eyes on God, focus your eyes on the hope of the gospel, not just physical freedom, not just, oh, one day we won't be slaves, spiritual freedom. When Jesus washes my sins away. Focus their eyes on the future. My soul is heaven-bound. This, this this is but for a moment. But this God that's on our side will one day deliver us. That's our future. So out of these kind of hellish circumstances of slavery emerges this faith-filled people who begin to hope in the gospel. You see, even during the slave slavery, this, this forming of the black church. In certain areas, more in, in the north, there was this hope as mass conversion, particularly uh, during the second great awakening, begins to break out. There's initial hope of uh, integration with the churches. Uh, Methodism, for instance, taught equality. But that is incredibly short lived, and there begins to be growing hostility uh, and uh, oppression against newly uh, converted African Americans, whether it be they can only sit in the balcony or they're not allowed to approach the front uh, and kneel at the altar to be prayed for or things like that. And so we have forming uh, through Richard Allen in 1814, he leaves uh, the Wesleyan Methodist Church and starts uh, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, or AME Church, which is, will be one of the most influential denominations. Uh, in America. Uh, And several other uh, denominations are starting, the Black Baptists, later the Black Pentecostals. Again, they're all being started as a result of uh, inequality or a result of oppression or a result of violence or a result of uh, being taught that they are uh, not equal and not equally made in the image of God, things like that. And as uh, uh, these denominations are starting, particularly the uh, AME church, there's instant persecution. They're an easy scapegoat anytime anything goes wrong in society. In the same way that in the early church, uh, when things are going bad and Nero burns down half of Rome, uh, in the first century and everyone's mad at him and who's the easy targets these weird christians that people think they're cannibals because they talk about drinking the blood and eating the body they think they're cannibals of babies because they were known for adopting kids that were thrown in the street so they're easy weirdos to pin all this on and there's massive persecution that outbreaks the same happens for these newly formed black church denominations they're easy scapegoats so there's a revolt uh, in charleston this is one example of uh, hundreds. In 1822, there was a revolt in Charleston uh, that was quickly put down, and the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston uh, was stormed by a white mob and burnt to the ground uh, as a result. And you may remember uh, in 2015 uh, when a a white man named Dylan uh, Roof went in to a Bible study and shot and killed nine people uh, and said afterwards it's because the blacks were taking over, and someone needed to do something about, uh, about it for the white race. That is the same church. 200 years later, it was rebuilt. Uh, Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. The same church. So that, that seems to be the story in this early era. African Americans become Christians. They originally or initially join the church of a a denomination that says, we're all about equality. Uh, And then as there's uh, instant persecution, as they're not treated like fellow heirs with Christ, they're not treated like those being made in the image of God, they leave, begin their own church, begin their own denomination, and they immediately face incredible violence, incredible uh, persecution. And then the Civil War happens. And the Civil War is going to be as much a crisis for the church as it is for the nation. Uh, America in particular, almost everyone outside of America has no questions over if slavery is bad or not. In America in particular, the Civil War is going to split the church in half, not just north and south. Uh, In fact, I was reading there was pastors in Brooklyn across the street from each other that were one weekend preaching the same biblical text. One said this was a text that clearly condones slavery. Another one used it as an abolition uh, message. So you have people across the street from each other in New York equally uh, having these radical different views. So they're divided over the Bible. Obviously, uh, people who are pro-slavery will read the Bible and say, Paul is saying slaves submit to your masters. Why are we having this conversation? And that certainly uh, appeals to the masses because that's easy. It seems to appeal to common sense. and then those who are anti-slavery begin to preach on uh, slavery and it's uh, not buying and selling human beings and ripping them out of their country. And uh, clearly the, the gospel implication is that one day, full equality, love of neighbor, all those things imply the eradication of slavery, but that's a bit more complex. That sounds a little nuanced. No time for that. Uh, and so it splits the church. Here's a quote from Mark Knoll, who wrote A Civil War as a Theological Crisis. Very uh, clear title. No common meaning could be discovered in the Bible, which almost everyone in the United States professed to honor, and which was, without a rival, the most widely read text of any kind in the whole country. So it's not like a couple a small minority of Christians are reading and debating. This is the most uh, widely read book in the whole country at the time, and it's splitting denomination after denomination. Baptists will split, north and south. Uh, the Methodists uh, will split, the Presbyterians will split, all over this issue, pro-slavery or anti-slavery. So Civil War happens, the uh, North wins, as we all know, and there's this second era that's a 12-year period called Reconstruction. Uh, we typically skip from civil war to civil rights, which is, uh, in my opinion, a hundred years too much of a leap. Uh, Reconstruction, this is a very important era because, like I said uh, at the beginning, this is going to set the trajectory of Jim Crow. There is, in this 12 years, initial re- uh, uh, an attempt to kind of uh, redress all the inequalities of slavery. So we saw things like 40 acres and a mule was promised. Uh, to every freed person or family. It was going to be confiscated from uh, Confederate uh, rebels. Their land was going to be taken away and given to these freed families. Everyone promised 40 acres and a mule. We saw the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments all passed, uh, which just gives basic human rights to newly freed African Americans, basic civil rights. Uh, Federal troops were sent from the north to the south to enact a lot of these changes to protect African Americans, make sure that uh, there's no oppression of these new amendments. Uh, and uh, the African-Americans are able to thrive, or at least there's this initial hope of uh, opening schools, which they did at every level, from elementary to college. There's this mass learning of reading and writing, finally. Uh, And then the black church is able to organize. Uh, No longer is it uh, secretly gathering uh, in slave houses to study the scriptures or sing songs together. They're able to organize publicly and begin to kind of stand on their own two feet. So this is an incredibly hopeful era. God is on their side, and then it is very short-lived. They find quickly emancipation does not mean equality. And we see the formation of the Ku Klux Klan uh, right at the beginning of Reconstruction. Right when the Civil War ends and Reconstruction begins, all this legislation is being passed, the uh, the KKK is formed explicitly, explicitly to resist Reconstruction. We often think of KKK uh, people as just like random racists who will randomly just go, Find an African American, lynch him in the woods somewhere. That is, They are literally a party that has begun to resist, uh, through violence, government overreach, as they saw it. Uh, so they uh, will kill. They will originally go after political uh, office holders. So they kill congressmen. They murder senators. Uh, Republicans at that time who were enacting a lot of these changes. Uh, African-Americans, as they're being elected into office, uh, seven African-Americans are going to be uh, killed that are elected officials. Um, So this is, it's helpful to call this, the first domestic terrorist organization in America. Again, this isn't randomly killing citizens. This is an organization that is trying to remove government uh, legislation through murder of senators, both white and black, congressmen white and black, and uh, story after story after story, this will be a theme that I read, ends with the line, no one was ever prosecuted for these murders. Seems to be a a theme. In fact, most of the time they were celebrated. The Ku Klux Klan would throw parades where thousands would gather and celebrate them because they were being viewed as these kind of protectors of the South, almost all of them identifying as Protestant Christians. We would say, obviously, they're not, but all of them identifying as Protestant Christians. Uh, In these 12 years, at least, we don't know the total number, there's at least 2,000 lynchings in these 12 years of Reconstruction. So if the violence wasn't enough, there's also political backtracking. 40 acres and a mule never materialized. I think around 2,000 out of millions and millions of African Americans actually got to keep land. President Andrew Johnson, as he follows Lincoln, reinstates property to Confederate states uh, if they swear allegiance. So that that promise is is taken back. African-Americans are forced into sharecropping, which is essentially just a replacement for slavery where they were allowed to work the land for a share of the crops, sharecropping. And at the end of the year, they'd always have a conversation with the landowner where he would essentially say, it's great. You don't owe me anything. I don't owe you anything. Have a nice day. So essentially working for free uh, replaces slavery. Uh, The the uh, social and economic situations are the exact same for African-Americans, only they're not someone's property. Uh, And then the troops uh, are removed from, uh, the northern troops are removed from the south. Rutherford B. Hayes is elected, and in 1876 removes all the troops, no protection for African-Americans, and as you would imagine, violence and mass lynching becomes normative. Not just by the KKK, by just anybody who is Upset, uh, we'll look at this more in a second. And Jim Crow laws flood in. Basically, all civil rights are stripped from African Americans. So this 12 years of hope is quickly dashed and sets the next century up for a uh, century and a half up for Jim Crow, which will eventually end in the civil rights movement. But in Reconstruction, how does the uh, what is the black uh, what role does the black church play? So uh, many new African American denominations were formed in this time as uh, they're being barred from worship with white congregations. They're able to organize for the first time. Again, stand kind of on their own two feet, pool their resources together, maybe buy some land, maybe build uh, a church building. The church uh, in the African-American community was often used for schools, for social events, political gatherings, and meeting the needs of the community. And the church itself really becomes the center of, of the black community. And uh, that's, again, it's where schools are meeting. It's where people are being taught to read and write. And so naturally, as the church is the center uh, of that, of the African-American community, the pastor would be seen as a leader. Uh, who's, who's the leader of the church? That's the center. Well, the pastor is uh, a leader in the African-American community, which we see, I mean, up until this day. Martin Luther King, Jr., what was he? A, a pastor, a Baptist pastor. John Lewis, a Baptist pastor. You see a lot of them. Uh, Almost all of the uh, leaders of the civil rights movements are Christian pastors. So you see that the roots, even in Reconstruction, uh, as the church is this kind of safe haven. As the community begins to flood in, to learn for the first time, to flee persecution from the outside, it becomes the very center of the community. And again, in, in the midst of persecution, it was this place of refuge. Here's again a quote from Diana Haynes. The church was the only place where they could safely and freely express their sorrow and their joy, their unvanquished hope in a God greater not only than themselves, but also than those who would oppress them. It was usually small, whitewashed wooden structure tucked away in the woods to which they flocked on Sunday and, if possible, other days of the week as well, to hear about and rejoice in a wonderworking God whose hand, they believe, was still over, around, and on them, blessing and guiding them on their way. So you do see this incredible... Uh, endurance of faith as all of their hopes are dashed before their eyes no land no help Uh, amendments that are passed are are basically nullified by violence and uh, uh, oppression from the outside but in the midst of all this the church isn't destroyed it actually grows stronger that's a theme that we'll see the black church continues not only to endure horrible situations but actually grow uh, and strengthen the community in the midst of these situations so reconstruction is a failure And afterwards, Jim Crow laws flood in like crazy. Jim Crow, we don't really know where the term, it's debated where the term is coming from or where the term comes from. Most people think it comes from an actor named uh, Thomas Rice who would dress uh, in blackface and do a uh, performance called Jumping Jim Crow, where he would mimic a disabled black man uh, and he, ironically, uh, suffered from a disabling disease and died later. Uh, and so he—that's where most people think the laws come from. These these laws designed to segregate and discriminate against these newly freed African Americans. So we see things like segregation. Plessy v. Ferguson happens in 1896, soon after Reconstruction ends. Separate but equal becomes law, and laws are passed all over the South, in particular, but really all over America, to prohibit white people and black people from really ever interacting together. So you see, they're not able to work in the same room, they're not able to use the same entrance or stairway or the same water fountain or the same toilets or the same tools at work. Uh, they had different train cars, different taxis. Uh, many courtrooms had a uh, Bible specifically for African Americans to swear in on and a Bible specifically for white people to swear in on lest they touch the same book as they're swearing in uh, in court. Uh, I read a law in Birmingham. There was a, a law passed where uh, it was illegal to play checkers together. Uh, whites and blacks to play checkers together. It was illegal for white prisoners to be chained to black prisoners, So even prisoners. We want them separate. You could be jailed for a minimum of six months for sitting in a white seat. And even though it was twice as expensive, I read uh, article after article of quotes saying uh, how expensive it was to segregate America, but how worth it, it was to keep everyone separate. Uh, marriages between uh, blacks and whites were, of course, made illegal in Maryland. I read a law where if a woman was found to be pregnant, uh, by, impregnated by a black man, she would serve a minimum of 18 months in jail. Uh, so uh, besides laws, there's, of course, just general racism in society. Uh, uh, African-Americans must say, yes sir, no sir, to a white person. You must step off the sidewalk if a white person is approaching. You couldn't speak unless spoken to. You couldn't initiate a handshake. Uh, I read a story of a man who was beaten brutally for asking for a receipt for his water bill from a, a white man. He spoke first instead of waiting. Uh, driving laws, uh, you couldn't have came to an a- intersection first, if you're an African-American driver and then a white driver came, you had to let him go first. You weren't allowed to pass uh, a white driver on the motorway, no matter how slow he was going, that was illegal. Uh, there was a curfew for most African-Americans. So you see this is kind of the world uh, that they're living in, separate but equal, but not really equal. And then, of course, what is by far the worst uh, mass violence and lynchings. So, this is not a hyperbolic statement. Every African American in the South would have lived with the reality that they could be lynched any day for any reason. That is not, not hyperbole. From 1889 to 1929, 40 years, in the South, an African American was either hanged or burned alive every four days. Days for things like boastful remarks, not saying sir to a white person, looking at a white woman the wrong way, or quote, acting like a white person. Read a lynching story of a man who was killed for stealing 75 cents in Orlando in 1920. A man tried to vote, didn't succeed, but tried to vote, and a white mob burned down his neighborhood Uh, and uh, so this is happening. Almost every attack, uh, again, ends with the line, no one is ever prosecuted for these crimes. These lynchings, this is really important for us to see, were not a couple random racists, again, taking someone out in the woods and doing this in secret. These were community events. Most of the time they were announced in the newspaper that a lynching was coming up at the end of that week with the time and place so that thousands could gather, and often thousands did gather to watch an African-American be tortured or killed. I read a story in Waco <coughs> uh, <coughs> where uh, 15,000 gathered to watch an 18-year-old uh, boy be burned alive as they chanted burn, and a father brought his three-year-old boy uh, to rest on his shoulders and watch, and he was interviewed later and said, My son can't learn too young. That's a community event. That is not random racist. That's 15,000 people in 1920, 100 years ago. And not just some random KKK members. Uh, bodies would be hanged in front of the courthouses or drugged behind cars around town. Many World War II vets who survived the Nazis came home and did not survive the South and were murdered for wearing their uniforms in public. Things like that. Uh, and politicians would campaign on the platform of promised lynchings. James Vardaman, this is a quote, if necessary, this is on, he's on the campaign trail, if necessary, every Negro, Negro in the state will be lynched and it will be done to maintain white supremacy and he was elected after that. The governor of Mississippi for four years and then he was sent to D.C. as a U.S. senator until 1919. So imagine... That's the world you're living in. You never know if that might be your fate the next day for looking at someone or someone thinking you looked at someone the wrong way or accidentally initiating a handshake or accidentally speaking to someone before you're spoken to or not stepping off the sidewalk, things like that. So how does the black church, again, we do a lot of social circumstances and situations so that you understand. This is the ministry that the black church is ministering in. What have we had to focus on for the last two years? Pandemic. Stuff like that, right? That affects all of us. We're talking about it from the front. Here's what we're gonna do, blah, blah, blah. That's nothing. Are we gonna wear masks or not? Who cares? Imagine if what we have to talk about is uh, several members of our congregation being strung up in McKinney Square and burned alive as the rest of the city watched. I think you would come into Sunday mornings with a little bit of a different attitude. So how does the black church minister in this situation? They have to adapt, obviously. White builders wouldn't uh, sell to them property. They wouldn't build for them, surely, or certainly. And they're too poor often to build their own. So they they begin to buy storefront churches, just anywhere that they can gather. Uh, Most of those were often bombed or burnt to the ground if they were able to build the church. But again, the church is viewed as this safe haven. This place we can gather, and not just gather together as a community, but to hear from our God. In the midst of horrible violence, the black church creates a very intimate community. They share, uh, or they shape morality of the community, and they bring comfort in the midst of suffering. Imagine a society that not only is violent against you, but violent against you because you're worthless. You're lesser than us, and you can come into the church, and you hear that God has created you in his image, You have a future hope in the gospel of redemption and that you have salvation. You have true salvation in Jesus Christ. Here's a quote from Anthony Bradley, who's a professor at King's College in New York. Since slavery, the black church has served as a primary place for moral and social reform in the black community. The black church provided a refuge from suffering and a place to hear the hope of God's plan to redeem all things because of what was finalized on the cross. We live in an anxiety-filled age. So what's one of the things we often preach? The gospel brings peace, right? Anxiety, what's the gospel answer? Peace. Imagine living in this as as an African-American. What's the gospel going to do? There's a hope in the future. Jesus Christ has bought us an infinite future of justice and peace. right? You see the gospel ministering to their social circumstances. Around this time, Jim Crow, is when the great migration would begin. Uh, Again, I was very unfamiliar with the details of the Great Migration. Six to seven million African-Americans leave the South and move North and West. This is gonna redraw uh, the maps of America. It's gonna transform urban America. Chicago uh, in 1900 or 1901 was 1.8% African-American after the Great Migration, 35%. Detroit uh, was 1.4%. African-American pre-migration afterwards, 44%. This is the largest single ethnic migration not caused by famine or war. And what are they fleeing? They're fleeing the South. They're fleeing Jim Crow. So as this is, uh, oppression is getting worse, they're, they're spreading uh, all across America, and the black church is going to spread with them, obviously. If they're Christians, they're going to spread uh, to the north and west in great numbers. In fact, a lot of uh, uh, religious scholars that I was reading were, called this the southernization of American religion, that the great migration, as the black church spreads, as African Americans are fleeing the south for California or Detroit, the northwest, things like that, uh, they called it the spreading of the born-again religion. The black church is spreading, uh, born again Christianity. That's what a lot of secular uh, scholars kind of observing this phenomenon are saying. It's spreading across not just the South, but America. And when they get to not the South, uh, they realize that racism isn't a deep South problem, it's everywhere. Uh, the South is just more violent. The numbers of lynchings and stuff like that are way higher. They called the North and the West James Crow. So you have Jim Crow in the South and James Crow everywhere else so once the great migration begins is when you see things like housing segregation skyrocket neighborhoods would draft covenants never to sell to an african-american the federal housing administration the fha from the federal federal government uh, only backs financial uh only financially backs neighborhood development and building uh, if they promise to be sold only to white families so around this time america is terrified of communism Uh, And so they think, what's the best way to fight against communism? Capitalism, right? We love this stuff, all us Republicans. Uh, And what's the best way for capitalism to thrive? Build houses. And so the FHA... uh goes to that effort. We want America to love capitalism, hate communism, and then you see a lot of these, well, let's keep uh, the ethnicities separate. Racial zoning laws guaranteeing African Americans couldn't buy homes where white people lived. You see things like redlining where banks and insurance companies would refuse loans or mortgages to African Americans. Uh, By the way, when you hear the term today, as a side note, when you hear people talk about systemic racism being around today, and your natural thought is, Show me the law, right? All the laws are off the books, right? Uh, The answer to that is yes. What typically people mean, not always, but typically what they mean is, sure, the laws are off the books, but the result of the laws are still here. And if you look at a, a redlining map of Dallas in 1930 and a map of Dallas now, they are almost identical, So that's typically what people mean. Don't misunderstand them. Typically what they mean is the results of past uh, racial practices have affected our day still. Uh, Violence skyrocketed in the north as African Americans are coming. They were being drug out of their homes and hanged. Armed guards would help guard uh, moving trucks, things like that. Uh, And again, the black church is spreading and is this community of this this safe haven that continues to point to the hope in God until finally we get to the civil rights movement. Uh, Remember... Church is the center of the community, pastors are the leader of the church and therefore would be natural leaders in the community. So in the civil rights movement, it is the African American pastors, black church pastors who are primarily leading the charge to end segregation. Notice, it is Christianity and a Christian worldview that leads to the abolition of slavery and eventually will lead to the ending of segregation. Don't go to secular sources to try and solve stuff today when the scriptures and a Christian worldview is what has solved everything in the past and what has been pointed to in the past, a Christian worldview and the scriptures. And most, uh, if I can say, white evangelicals, again, that's really broad, doesn't mean everybody, uh, struggled in the Civil Rights Movement with this idea of full equality. Most churches, again, were still segregated, and so it was the black church that was kind of leading the way in this fight for this uh, gospel issue, even though that's an overused term, uh, in the 1960s. And so to say it stronger, the black church in large part ends Jim Crow. Uh, in large part, uh, ends Jim Crow. As they gather together in uh, community or in the churches to stir the people towards action, they uh, gather to pray and sing and hear sermons and dance and all these different things. Rosa Parks was uh, a member of the A.M.E. Church and was quoted as saying, "It was her faith, her Christian faith, that led her to take a stand, or to take a take a sit." Uh, Martin Luther King, again, a Baptist minister, if you listen to a lot of his speeches or sermons, it, it, especially in, in uh, churches, it would be, "God is on our side." right this is, this is where God's leading. All men are created equal." Here's a quote, "We must never forget that in, uh, never forget this as a nation, there are no gradations in the image of God. Every man, from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely. Because every man is made in the image of God. You see how that Christian truth, that's Genesis 1. You see how Genesis 1 and 2 is what's the, 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 the force leading in the civil rights movement. It's not just great speeches, it's, it's the scriptures. It's the Christian truth that's leading, and it's the black church that's primarily taking that truth into a, a society. Most, uh, actually, almost all nonviolent. Uh, The black church was uh, nonviolent. They'd always point to God as their defender and their liberator. We don't need to do it. He's going to do it for us. Uh, And so some African Americans that didn't like that uh, would turn to other voices. That's when you see things like the Black uh, Muslim Brotherhood, Malcolm X, who were opposed to the white oppressive Christianity, thought people like MLK were taking too long, actually start to advocate for black supremacy, which MLK is going to strongly fight against, say it's just as bad as white supremacy. Uh, And so you see the black church leading this movement. And it does eventually uh, work. In the same way that we saw David Livingston goes to Africa as a missionary last week, sees the slave trade, says, I'm dedicating my life to this being removed. And in large part is successful. We see the black church again leading this fight for justice. So... There's some uh, three theological movements. We can transition a little bit from story to theology. There's three theological movements in the 20th century uh, that are going to kind of uh, heavily affect the black church. Two bad, one good. First, liberal theology. Zach gave a lesson a couple weeks ago on liberal theology, how it affects everything, how it comes and affects. It doesn't just affect the black church. It affects all of the church, especially in America. A little history lesson, uh, always throughout the history of Christianity Social action and justice issues, things like that, were always integrated with evangelism. They weren't separate, right? Everything was a gospel issue. Uh, So, for instance, Gregory of Nyssa, a 4th century father who is a Cappadocian father who fights the Battle of the Trinity, early, 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 was the first to come out and say, uh, because all men are made in the image of God, we should eradicate the practice of slavery. Again, David Livingston, we looked in last week. That's, they're not saying, hmm, should I be a social gospel believer or should I believe the biblical gospel? They're like, this is, the gospel clearly affects this. But as liberal theology comes in, liberal theology strips away all the miraculous, the resurrection, things like that, Jesus being the son of God, and basically just leaves the social progress. So they strip a lot of all the things that we would say is Christian belief. And the conservative response to that was, okay, well, that's wrong. Uh, The gospel is just about evangelism. That was kind of the conservative response. But that's a mistake. It was always meant to go together. Okay, so the two sides of the same coin. But in some cases, not all, social concern in the black church leads away from orthodox belief towards liberal theology. And the best example of this is Martin Luther King. Uh, so as far as we know, we have his seminary papers. He may have changed his mind. I don't think so, or I've never uh, come across anything of him publicly changes, changing his mind. But he denied virgin birth. He denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That if Paul says, if there's no resurrection, our faith is futile and we are most to be pitied. Right? Pretty important. Uh, he denies the supernatural plan of salvation, the Trinity, substitutionary atonement, and the second coming. Kind of the things that definitionally make you a Christian, Martin Luther King says... No, all the evidence for those sort of things are lacking. So he's, again, you see, moving away from essentials of the Christian faith. If you deny this, our faith is futile. You're not a Christian definitionally if you deny Jesus is Christ. That's what Christian means. Uh, And so there's this moving away from essentials towards social action. So you see guys like Al Al Sharpton today, Jesse Jackson, uh, Ralph Warnock, who was just elected in Georgia as a senator, and John Lewis, who recently passed. All of them. We think about them as activists and congressmen and things like that. All Baptist ministers. All Baptist ministers but uh, have liberal theology. So you see that movement away from uh, the truths of the scriptures towards social action. And then the second is liberation theology. So liberation theology is a response to the civil rights movement. uh, This idea that MLK isn't going far enough. And it's the belief that what we're being rescued from isn't sin but social and political injustice. And James Cone is the father of uh, liberation theology. He was a minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME Church. Uh, He is going to say things like this. I have a bunch of quotes there. So Jesus primarily is a liberator of the oppressed. I'm not reading a quote here. I'm just giving you a summary. He's primarily a liberator of the, the, the oppressed, and he fights against evil oppressors. He defines the oppressed as African Americans. He defines evil oppressors as white. Uh, white uh, society. Here's three quotes. Uh, the God of the biblical faith in black religion is best known as the liberator of the oppressed from bondage. So there you see. Primarily what's God about liberating the oppressed. Second quote. Black theology refuses to accept a God who is not identified totally with the goals of the black community. That seems backwards. If God is not, uh, f- uh, not for us and against white people, then he is a murderer and we had better kill him. Okay? I think that's problematic. I don't know about you. Uh, Third quote, black theology will accept only the love of God which participates in the destruction of the white enemy. Again, in my opinion, not the best. Uh, And so this is going to affect a lot of of thought in the black church. He's going to combine Christian teaching kind of with Marxism, with kind of communist thought. Why not? Here's a, another quote. Why not think of a completely new society and begin to devise a way to realize, realize it on Earth together? Black religion and Marxist philosophy may show us the way to build a completely new society. With with that combination, we may be able to realize a society, a uh, society of freedom, which we sing and pray for in the Black Church. So this is going to have a big uh, effect on a lot. And the black church. Again, not everybody. So you see things, again, why why a lot of conservatives freak out when uh, people talk about using critical race theory as an analytical tool. Uh, You see that fear of that combination. Don't take Christian teaching, which, by the way, has solved all this in the past, uh, and bring in Marxism that's going to point away from the gospel and away from God who uh, solves these things. Approximately, I don't know how accurate we can be, but uh, People, scholars think around 40% of uh, the black church identifies with this black liberation theology. Again, Anthony Bradley says this uh, liberation theology set the black church in a huge direction and course to change the gospel to apply to political issues and not issues of personal sin and redemption. Again, the problem with that I would think would be obvious. It's the same mistake that many radicals in Israel make when Jesus shows up. Why does Jesus rebuke Peter after he correctly says, You're the Christ? Jesus says, I'm going to die, and Peter rebukes him, and he says, get behind me, Satan. You have man's ideas, not God. What does Peter want? You can't die. You're supposed to defeat Rome. You're supposed to get us out of these oppressed circumstances, and Jesus says, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to defeat the ultimate oppressor, the devil. I'm here to defeat sin. I'm here to break the chains of sin, not the chains of Rome. Okay, so it ironically makes that same mistake. I've got some quotes there. I won't read uh, uh, Michael Gerson there. I'll read Anthony Bradley, the second quote when the gospel becomes too much about political issues, we can lose the fact that what we need to come to the Lord for is forgiveness, grace, and mercy. We miss the fact that we're being liberated from the oppression of sin and the devil, and we're being freed, really, to love God and love our neighbor in the way that God created us to do in the first place. Okay, so this does have a bitty, or pretty big movement. And then the third uh, movement is reconciliation theology, the, the one we would be familiar with, that the gospel leads to the reconciliation of every ethnicity. And I have a Quote there, we won't read. So those are kind of three big movements that kind of all happened during and after the civil rights movement that are going to set this kind of different trajectory of the black church. And then today, or for the last 50 years, will be the third or fourth era. So the black church today, post-segregation, praise God, uh, is more difficult to point out. And it's, I don't mean this to sound like a positive, it's easier to say there's the black church when segregation is there. Uh, but post-segregation, again, praise God, you start you start to see uh, integration and ethnic progress and things like that. Uh, there are still uh, many black church denominations, I have a list there, that have millions of Members throughout America, throughout Africa and South America. Even today, you might have an African American pastor, and his church is predominantly black, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a black church, things like that. So it's just a bit more difficult today. But after the civil rights, there was this battle over what is the identity of the black church, what is the role of the black church, if their whole history since being in America has been about gathering hope in the gospel and social progress, getting out of these bad circumstances, what is our role now that, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the Jim Crow laws are off the books, things like that, and so here's the battle, should the black church, one, be about individual advancement, now that that's a possibility, That's a big question, and people that answer yes, you see the prosperity gospel flood in. God wants to make you rich. God wants to make you uh, very wealthy as a sign of God's favor. You see guys like T.D. Jakes, Net worth of 18 million, televangelist guys like Creflo Dollar, 27 million, does campaigns to raise a you know 60 million dollar private jet because you can't stop him from having faith in God, and so that's appealing. Uh, and again, Anthony Bradley says uh, you can read that quote. Uh, we don't have time to read it, but uh, how this is this is taken over in, in a large way within the black church, and, and unfortunately, consumerism of America is taking deep roots, uh, and it shows in in a big expression. Of, of the black church today. So that's the first. In, is it about individual advancement now that uh, the the chains have been broken, if you will? Or is it about the community continuing to fight for social progress? And a lot of scholars say that's where the black church today is dead. They've lost their prophetic voice. They're not unified like they used to be. But there's people who say, no, we're, we're about what we've always been about, fighting for social progress Uh, things like uh, that you'll hear the phrase the public school to prison pipeline or mass incarceration, things like that. Those are the issues of our day, uh, certain uh, sectors of the black church would say. Guys like Charlie Dates Jr., who's a pastor uh, in Chicago, uh, he was speaking at the Gospel Coalition uh, MLK50 conference a couple years ago and said this. "Uh, We wanted you, speaking to white evangelicals, to to be our greatest allies in the struggles against injustice. We wanted y'all to talk about the public school to prison pipeline. He lists several other social issues and then ends with shame on you. So that's, that's a big question. Is this what we're about? Or thirdly, is should the black church simply uh, praise God for the gospel, uh, taking root in our society, removing segregation, and should we be reconciled to those who were formerly not reconciled to? That's the other big question. You see that all over. And the fact that our church is not a white church uh, is evidence of that movement. And then lastly, or second to lastly, we see postmodernism as it's affected. Everything has also affected uh, the black church as well. You see uh, many things like the redefinition of terms. Justice has been redefined. Now we have either is it social justice or biblical justice. Uh, You can't just jump in to a justice issue today. You have to ask, is this Biblical justice, right? You don't just join uh, a BLM rally thoughtlessly. You have to ask, okay, what are the actual issues here? But justice has been redefined. Racism has been redefined. It's prejudice plus power now. That's a very Marxist uh, definition. It's not just uh, heart evil. It's your society, your, your status in society as well. You have guys like Jamar Tisby who wrote The Color of Compromise, a New York Times bestseller, recommended in tons of churches. And at the beginning he says, here's how I define racism, prejudice plus power. Okay, so what that means is certain ethnicities cannot be guilty of sin by nature of their social status. I don't think that's a very biblical definition. Eric Mason... Pastor in Philadelphia, former vice president of Acts 29, I listened to a sermon just the other day where he said, Anybody can be prejudiced, only a few people can be racist. Racism is the application of your power to enforce your prejudice on other people. That means whites have to stop calling black people racist. Okay, so you see that postmodern kind of uh, critical theory definition prejudice plus power uh and you see oppression victimization whiteness white supremacy all of them have been redefined why is that bad that's bad because when you start calling everything racist you can't point out actual racism and you can't deal with actual racism when you start calling everything oppression you can't engage with actual oppression To quote the Incredibles, when everyone is super, no one will be, right? So this is why that's not uh, uh, that great of a thing. You see, cancel culture, outrage culture, guilt culture. For some reason, instead of celebrating God's beautiful reconciliation, there's incredibly angry guilt from most uh, sermons about uh, the progress that has been made Uh, Looking to secular voices is what I think is the most dangerous. Again, because of this, the evangelical kind of conservative mindset has always been the gospel is about evangelism and then they realize racism is a bad thing. Instead of looking to the scriptures for our resources, again, Like uh, Gregory of Nyssa, like David Livingston, like everyone always has, William Wilberforce, looking at the scriptures to solve these things. We're looking to secular voices like BLM that's explicitly Marxist, hates Christianity, hates the nuclear family, critical race theory, intersectionality. Guys like Ibram X. Kendi, who's not a Christian, but uh, his books are recommended, again, I can think of. Four or five churches that I love, pastors that I love, that have his books on their website. He said something. He said this at a church that he was being interviewed at. Anti-racism. He's the kind of the father of anti-racism. Fundamentally rejects savior theology. That uh, savior theology goes right in line with racist ideas and racist theology. That type of theology breeds bigotry. So the idea that you need to be saved and you need someone to save you is racist. Sorry, Jesus. Uh, He also says this, how do we we, uh, make a remedy of past discrimination? The only remedy for past discrimination is present discrimination. So when you see things like literal resegregation today, this is where a lot of that comes from. So again, his book's recommended on a lot of Uh, Churches, uh, you see people judging by the color of skin, not by the content of their character. There's a pastor that I love that said at a conference, when I'm looking for uh, pastors to to lead churches that I plant, if I have a uh, Anglo eight and a Black seven, I'm going to go with the Black seven. Which maybe someone can explain to me. I don't know how that's not offensive. Hey, there was someone more qualified than you, there's someone that was a better fit for you, but because of the color of your skin, we chose you. I don't understand how that's not the total opposite of MLK's dream. Judge not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Maybe I'm missing something, uh, but it seems to be flipping. And then again, identity politics. You see uh, more of an identification with uh, the African-American ethnicity than Christian. So you see guys like Lecrae who say they're leaving white evangelicalism to find their cultural roots. Uh, Eric Mason, again, I listened to a sermon the other day where he was talking to African-Americans that leave the black community uh, and integrate with predominantly white churches and don't point back to fixed justice issues. He compared them to house slaves, selling out slaves in the field, and said you're selling out your people. Again, this identification primarily with the black community, not with uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ, which the scriptures are going to always point to. Galatians 3, there's uh, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, all are one in Christ. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring unity, I came to bring a sword, to divide son against father. The gospel changes your idea of community, who you're going to spend eternity with. Your eternal community is different than your family, and it's different than your neighborhood. It's different than your earthly community, but that's being flipped experience over truth why did i have to give a clarifier at the beginning of this that i'm white and that's okay it's because our culture says because i don't have the experience i can't speak into certain things and so you see a lot of that in our day when you see kind of the rhetoric or you just are on twitter you see a lot of these effects of postmodernism, obviously affecting the church as a whole but specifically uh, those are the ways in which the black church has been affected so the question is as we have no time left what do we do about it today We're not in the civil rights movement anymore we're in this new era of today how do we address all these different things do we do things like reparations do we uh, uh, implement these different government policies i don't know let's ask someone who's educated in that area because i'm not you know what it's not great for you guys me studying something for five seconds and then spouting it off to you right i'm sure there's other guys that'll be another teaching later studying athanasius and the early church fathers didn't make me a great uh, economist That didn't give me a great uh, uh, political theory degree in seminary. But thankfully for us, there's no secret formula. We look to the scriptures like the church always has. The scriptures abolish the slave trade. The scriptures abolish slavery. The scriptures abolish uh, segregation. So we praise God for that. We realize that the scriptures say we're all made in the image of God. What does that mean? We hate and we fight against racism with the gospel. We hate and we fight against racism with the gospel. We're all co-heirs, co-heirs with Christ. What does that mean? We're all we, we hate and fight against inequality with the gospel. See what I'm adding to the end of all these sentences with the gospel? We realize we're all one in Christ. That means we celebrate the unity we have in, in the diversity with the gospel, brought about by the gospel. We love our neighbor, which means we advocate for biblical justice. We stand for truth, which means we fight against ideas that are going to point people away from God and away from the gospel point people away from God's solution to these issues Jesus says I'm the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me why would we point away from him to fix a fallen world and then lastly we look to the future with hope Revelation 7 9 John as he's seeing uh, this incredible vision of eternity after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number every nation and from every tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb we are not where we need to be we will never be we live in a fallen world until christ comes back but we look to the future with hope that's our future every tribe tongue and nation worshiping the lamb i'll end with this quote by dr carl ellis the only hope is the kingdom of God under the lordship of Christ, who is universal and not culture bound, but in the same way, at the same time, fulfills the longings of all cultures. Let me pray for us, and then we will be dismissed. Father, we love you. Uh, we thank you that your, your gospel is the remedy to this. One day, you will come back, your son, you will, uh, Christ will come back, and he will uh, eliminate all the foolish ideas of the world and bring about perfect unity perfect unity in the kingdom of God as we stream into Zion and praise you as the God of justice, the God of peace, as the knowledge of God fills the earth, as the waters cover the sea. We pray for that day. We want to set our eyes on that day and we want to believe the scriptures, cling to you as the solution to our, uh, uh, the problems of our day. We thank you for the black church. We thank you for the ways that they challenge us and we pray uh, for, for, again, eternity when you return and make all things new, when you wipe away every tear. We love you and pray in your son's name, amen.